The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you, came, when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, what's, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? How, how, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. For if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will be not it will not be for judgment. And the other things, I will give directions when I come. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at this passage about the Lord's Supper and we think about the church in Corinth and what's going on for them, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to evaluate our hearts, that we would be people, a community of grace that feasts on your grace in Jesus, and that we would be different from the world around us so that Jesus would be much of. In his name we pray, amen. We're going to start out by looking at this passage by talking about church pews. I'm sure you guys all have thought about church pews. Church pews have an interesting history in the life of the church. For the first 1,400 years or so of, the, of Christianity, there is no record of there being church pews, no sitting, nothing in church buildings. They would get together, and they would just have a big open space and everybody would just sit on the floor or stand and walk around and do nothing. <laughs> church pews came around uh, actually during the Reformation when John Calvin and Martin Luther, and they were helping the church become re uh, reform. And so when the preaching of the word became more central to the life of the church, people were like, can I please get a seat? You know, like, can I just sit down for a little bit of this? And so what ha ended up happening is the way church pews came around were what things were called um, pew boxes started appearing in church buildings and church sanctuaries. And so 
uh, folks who had the means, they would install a little box in the worship service and they would put their pews in it. Sometimes they would have like a fireplace in there, you know, they have like a little tent and be like their own little cubby inside the church building. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Old North Church down in Boston. Can we throw this picture up? Do we have the slides working? Can we throw that up? The uh, uh, old, old North, so here's a sanctuary. So you got like all the pew boxes, like this happens. You get, have you ever been to a church building that has these pew boxes? Yeah. And you see that one that's got like all like the red carpet in it and all that stuff? I, I think that was like George Washington's or something like that. Like they would like deck out. I'm sorry? Boston. Why not, man? I mean, guy was famous. Ship captains? Okay, I couldn't find the details. I was just like, it's ship captain George Washington, same idea. You know, um, but they would have these pew boxes, and of course, the folks, can we throw up the next slide, just to kind of give you a sense of what these look like. See, it, they kind of, they look very uncomfortable, but these all developed because as needs arose within the church building, and there was a lot of latitude to kind of figure out how do we sit, the people who had wealthier means built, this, built these spaces for them to sit, which then began to encroach and push the people who did not have as much money out to the edges of the church building. Eventually, uh, somebody was very just kind of gospel thinking and said, why don't we just install our own benches and then everybody can be uncomfortable in these wooden benches together. <laughs> that history, we could take that down now so people, we're not distracted by that. That history is just another iteration of the same thing that's going on in this chapter in 1 Corinthians. There are a lot of people who are coming together in Jesus. We often call ourselves as a church an island of misfit toys, right? We are a bunch of people who just have all of our own issues and whacked out dynamics, and Jesus comes and rescues us out of those things and throws us into a family with other people who've got another history of whacked out dynamics, and we try to figure it out together. And when you do that, you get people who often come together, and then they try to play with their whacked out dynamics in ways that they don't realize that they're doing, and they bring power plays from the world around them or other dynamics from their life outside the, of, of Jesus into the family of Jesus. And so what's going on in 1 Corinthians here is this whole dynamic of you had rich people, <coughs> excuse me, you had rich and poor ethnicities, lots of, uh, you had men and women worshiping together, coming together in Jesus to try to do life together in Jesus and to try to figure it out together. So Paul's addressing their problem when it comes to this issue of the Lord's Supper and redirecting them by some severe corrections, right? We get that verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. So he's coming out, he's duking with them, but he's redirecting them towards the grace and purpose of the Lord's Supper. I'm not sure if anybody's familiar, if they grew up in, in, a, in, in church context or if you're familiar with church or this is all new to you, but the Lord's Supper is a big deal in the life of the church because it ends up being the way in which we embody. We actually have a drama service every time we get together that shows what we think about what does the gospel mean, right? And so if you grew up in the Roman Catholic church, you would have seen very orchestrated Lord's Supper, or they call it the Eucharist. You get together, very dramatic. You had the bells ringing, and you had the Lord's Supper being held up, and it has to be done by a priest. And some magic happens inside it so that now it's becoming the body and blood of Jesus. We're not going to be on the same track with our Roman Catholic friends on that. But we do believe that the Lord's Supper is critical in our life together in the Lord's, in, uh, on a worship service. And so we do it every week. And so this is actually a passage to try to help us think through, okay, what is the purpose of the Lord's Supper? How does it redirect? How does it correct us? How does it draw us into the life of the gospel? 
And what Paul is going to be saying to us is, you are going to be feasting on something when you get together. Are you going to be feasting on your ego? Are you going to be feasting on your own motivations? Are you going to be feasting on something that's contrary to Jesus? Or, when you come together with God's people to worship, are you going to be feasting on the grace that God gives us in Jesus? Because you can't have both. So here's the main point of the passage, and we're going to start asking, we're going to kind of work through it. The Lord's Supper leads us to be a community that feasts on grace. The Lord's Supper leads us to be a community that feasts not on our own ego, not on our own messed up dynamics, not on our own power plays, not on all the other ways in which we would want to make God our servant. The Lord's Supper leads us to be a community that feasts on grace. The sacrament says something about the way we understand God's grace to us in the gospel. What it means to be invited to have a meal with God. And so we're going to just kind of work through this. We're going to pick up in verse 17. The Lord's Supper makes us a community fed with unifying grace. So if this is the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper, what is he feeding us with? The first thing is we are a community fed with unifying grace. Okay, verse 17 but when I, in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. I want to pause there and just make a note that come together, that phrase, that word is a very technical word within this passage, within the New Testament to describe this meeting right now, right? It's not any sort of like, hey, let's get together at Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts and get a cup of coffee. That's not what's in view. It's a technical term that describes the, the church coming together as a worshiping entity to worship Jesus together, right? So it happens in verse 17, verse 18, right? So for in the first place, when you come together as a church, verse 20, when you come together, and then happens in verse 33 and 34. So this verse and this section is not about like, hey, whenever you have a potluck as a church, <laughs> that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about when you come together for the purpose of worshiping God and all that he has done for you in Jesus, that's what's in view. It's a technical term for the worshiping church. But when you come together, verse, uh, he's going to go on to talk about um, basically kind of like a house church context. And it's not to say that the house church model, so to speak. So house church model is basically everybody just needs to get together in their houses. They get together. They worship Jesus. They have a meal together. And that's all that you need to do. You don't need to get rent space on a Sunday morning. You don't need to do anything like that. That's not what this is talking about, although I'm certainly fine with that model. Um, Acts 2 has a picture of the church that gets together and worships on the Sabbath or worships on Sunday or Saturday, and they get together through the week. So this is not what this is about. But you have to remember, in Corinth, they didn't have community centers <laughs> where you could rent. Their, their, their only community center was either the pagan temple or big houses. And so big houses were owned by folks who had a lot of money and pagan temples were open, uh, owned by Zeus and all his uh, posse. You know what I mean? And so Paul's problem with how they're doing things is that when they get together in their houses, they're using their house under the banner of doing church together to do their own power plays. So we're going to pick up in verse 18 and we're going to kind of see how some of this works out. So verse 18 for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. 
For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, one gets drunk. Okay. When we read this, we can kind of kind of get messed up like, okay, well, what's going on here? Like, because you have like the head of the table and they like take all the food by the time the food gets to the back of the bottom of the table, you know, like you, when you do like, what do you do in your house? Like counterclockwise or clockwise when you hand the food around and like the people who get the food first are really stingy. That's not what's going on in this passage. It's actually a reference to how um, what's going on in the backdrop is how they had their houses even set up. Like we, we, if you ever visit another country or you've been in another place, like you realize like, oh, the way we Americans do things is not the way everybody does things, right? <laughs> everybody does not have their houses built the same way. So can I throw up this slide here? This is, this is how Roman houses would have looked at that time, and this is going to be critical for us understanding this passage. So you see you have the big front wing of the house, like that first square where people come in the front door, and it's called the atrium. Right, they come in. There's kind of some rooms off to the side, but that's kind of like the main kind of like business area of the church. And then the back half of the house would have, or back half of the front business area of the house, back half would have been kind of like the home area, right? So you have like the front half of like, this is where we engage the community. Maybe your business has run out of this. The back half kind of like the second loft of a store. This is where the family does our thing. Okay. The front part is called the atrium. And I just want to point out this little room here. I'm just going to step over here. Hopefully I don't set off the mic. This is called the Triculean. That's a little room off to the side where that would have been their dining room for the family. All right, so can we throw up the next slide? This kind of makes it a little bit, you can kind of see it a little bit better. So you, so you see you have the front half with the, uh, over here, sorry, atrium here, front half, and then you've got this little room here off of it. Sometimes I had a door facing in towards the atrium. Sometimes I had a door facing towards the back. So... When they would get together with the, to do the ch- do church and they would have a, the Lord's Supper, quote-unquote, they would get the people who were the richer folks who owned the house in their little room together, and then they would get all the, the lesser-thans or the, the have-nots who would just gather together in the atrium. And all the good food would be served to the family off in their own little room, their, their cubby room first, and they would get everything first, and then they would hand off whatever the scraps were to the rest of the folks who are eating. So now you, you imagine that in a church context, right? You have the people who are the haves getting all the first dibs on what's supposed to be a meal of grace to represent. This is our life together in Jesus. We get free grace and they're just like sucking everything up. And then they are giving all the leftovers to the lesser thans within the church, the, the folks who don't have as much in the church. And it actually was communicating, we're the important people and you're our servants, right? You guys are on the outside. We are on the inside. So we, get, we can take that down. So you're getting the context. So when they get together in a worship service, they're doing a meal, and there is a dynamic of the inner circle and the outer circle, and it's very clear just merely by who's getting the food first, right? They get the sirloin cuts. These folks, you know, they get the scraps. They get the scrapple leftovers, right? So that's kind of what's going on, and that's why he's kind of like, uh, and you're getting all like drunk on this food when it's actually supposed to be like handed around. Now, that's just what's going on at base level. I just want to go one little level deeper, just kind of give you some context for what was going on in Corinth. At the time, scholars would, rec- would, would say that uh, Corinth had the ability to maybe, by agriculture, support about 17,000 people in the city. 
They had agriculture, you know, food growing out in the countryside um, to be able to support people who were, uh, you know, farmers and all that stuff within the city. So they lived on the peninsula, and a lot of their food had to be shipped in and shipped out. It's also estimated that the population of the city was around 40 to 60,000 people. So I just mentioned that to say there was not enough food to go around. So if you're a have with money, you get the first foods. If you're a have not, you're at a real disadvantage. So you're seeing there's some economics going on here. And what's, it's not merely like, oh, we get the first food. It's we actually have the means to get food and you don't get anything. And so now you bring all of that into a church context and you can get a little bit more for why Paul starts out verse 17, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you very strongly. This is not right in the family of Jesus, right? You do not do these power plays, these dynamics of we're the haves, you're the have nots, because what it ultimately ends up doing is it ends up becoming a bit of a prosperity gospel saying God loves us more. We're closer to grace God loves you less, you're on the outskirts of grace. That is not the gospel message. That is not who Jesus is. That is not what should be happening here. There's a semi-prosperity gospel saying, we are more Christians and you are lesser Christians. And it is a front to the very nature of the gospel, right? So you have verse 22. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Bro, can't you do your potlucks on another night of the week? But in doing what you're doing, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. You see, there is a unity that the church should be having in our life together in Jesus because the gospel of grace says all are welcomed, All are invited in. All have equal access. All are equally messed up. And the way we get in on that grace is by a grace that unifies us to Jesus and separates us out from the world's structures. Right? This is why you have him saying basically the structure and culture of worship matters. Right? It reflects something about the nature of the gospel. Right? It says something about how God thinks about us. So that's why verse 18 and 19, he talks about there being divisions, right? They are creating these false divisions within their church where the more thans, you got the lesser thans, that's a division. And Paul's saying, yeah, there's going to be divisions. Uh, but there are going to be divisions that are going to say who's in Jesus and who's out of Jesus, not these preferential issues that you're trying to talk about or these power plays that you're doing, right? John Owen describes schism, which is the word that's used there for divisions, as causeless differences, right? Causeless, there's really no reason to have a difference on this, right? What are causeless differences that you've seen within the life of the church, right? Only Christians, Christians only vote for this political party, or Christians only do, you know, this sort of like a dress code for church life, or Christians only hold these, you know, lifestyle choices. Those are like, who cares? You know, like there's important issues within each one of those. Actually, the gray issues that we were kind of talking about a couple Sundays ago, that's how you kind of think through those issues. But you're going to make a, 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 a hard line about things. Now you're starting to say something about the nature of what it means to be a Christian. And Paul says, there is something that you are united in with Jesus that is very different than what 
you are trying to accomplish with these PowerPoints. So how do we face this? How do we see this in our area, in our life? I just think that, the, like what I mentioned, this political, um, I think that is an issue that we need to be aware of. Um, I don't frankly see it in our life together as a church. Um, if you're new here or wondering, um, we've got people legitimately across the entire political spectrum. And I kind of enjoy the difference. I, I actually, uh, I was hanging out with Jay and another friend of ours the other day, and I was like asking questions just because I like to provoke a little argument. Like, why not have a little bit of some fun, you know? Just to kind of provoke the discussions. But it doesn't really affect who's in, who's out, who's in leadership, who's not, who's the better Christians in the church, and who's not. We got a lot of diversity on this issue. So I think that we're getting this category. But we have to recognize that as Americans and as evangelicals, there is an implicit obsession with power and politics. It just comes with the DNA of being an American. And we're going to have issues that we think through in our life together where you're going to have impulses. I'm going to have impulses that say, what's wrong with this? Or why is this? And those are the dynamics of power plays from Americans as American DNA coming out, I think. And we need help seeing this, right? They, they didn't see that very easily, right? They thought, hey, we're going to have friends over. We can use this to bolster our standing in the community. Let's just have friends over, and they didn't even realize the category was going on, right? Then these, these richer Christians within the church, it's not a problem to be a rich Christian. That's not a problem. They were using it for their own advantage. There are going to be things where I'm going to miss it, and you're going to miss it, and we're going to need help being corrected to see how we're bringing in the world's processing of the, our life in Jesus. And so if you have ever felt unwelcomed, if you've ever felt lesser than or pushed out or not included and it, in a way that would indicate to you that we're better Christians or I'm a better Christian or somebody else is a better Christian, I want to know. I want to know how we can have that conversation and learn where we're missing the mark on that stuff. We don't, I don't think that we've got it solved. We're always going to have this struggle. But the other thing that I want us to recognize, and we kind of talked about this at the beginning of it, he said, come together within this paragraph three times, and he says it within this whole section five times. When we come together like this, this is something different. This is different than showing up to work. This is different than showing up for a counseling appointment. This is different than going to the voting booth. This is different than going to a rally. This is different than showing up for a concert. We want great music, and we get it. This is different than showing up for whatever else, the other meetings that you show up for. This is convened by God himself, and you are invited into his presence, into his grace, into his family. This is a different meeting than anything else in our daily lives. There, there is a certain reverence that we need to keep in mind when we come. We want to keep things cool and casual. That's fine, right? But when we come together, this is not just like an instruction meeting where I do a download on the Bible. This is God calling us together. These are my people. And we are on a mission with our God in his family to be fed by his grace and united with his mission. This is different. This is different than anything else. So I want us to I want to keep that in mind. That's why we this is why we have our call to worship is always a passage from scripture. It's a, it's a reminder. We don't get God's attention with how loud our music is or how great our singing is. 
God gets our attention by calling us to his presence with his word. Right? This is different than anything else. And we must be reminded that we are united when we come together. This Island of Misfit Toys, we are an Island of Misfit Toys united by Jesus. So that's, what kind of, that's where Paul is, I think, the positive dynamic. As much as this is a corrective passage, that is the positive call of the Lord's Supper in the first paragraph. We're going to turn now to the second paragraph. We want to be, the Lord's Supper makes us a community fed with delivering grace. Delivering grace, verses 23 through 24. We legitimately, like I think we've read this passage like 300 times. We read this every time we do the Lord's Supper. So you, this is going to sound very familiar to, to a lot of us. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I want to draw our attention to a dynamic in this passage. Verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Chapter 15, Paul talks about, I received from the Lord this gospel, which I also delivered to you. There are these core, foundational, fundamental things that are objective realities that have been handed on, right? They aren't sort of like, a lot of these, this passage in this book Obviously, scripture, still God breathed and given to us. It is the outworking of this gospel that happens outside of us, landing like a meteor in Corinth and dusting up all these issues they have to address. But the, 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 the foundational reality is this gospel message of Jesus Christ dying for us in our place by, by his grace to make us a community, a family in Jesus that comes and is an objective reality to confront our inner turmoil. So, we're going to just talk about this for a second. We talked about this a few weeks ago with what the Lord's Supper is. But the Lord's Supper is the background for what was going on when Jesus did the Lord's Supper on the, on the night when he was betrayed. It was the Passover. So the Passover was a meal that happened, started back in the book of Exodus. They started as a meal to celebrate God has saved us out of Egypt and drawn us into his presence, made us a part of his family. And so he gave them this, this Passover meal. They had to get their hiking boots on. They had to keep their hiking, hiking staff right next to them. They basically ate it with dirty hands. And it was a quick meal, right? Do it quickly. You're, there's no leaven in the bread. Just throw the, throw the dough in the oven. You get what you get. Cut the lamb. Eat the food. Put some bitter herbs on it. Walk out the door. Because God is delivering you quickly and effectively. It's not, that is what's the background for what's going on in the Lord's Supper. That's the meal that Jesus is using. The interesting thing about the Lord's uh, the Passover meal back in the, uh, the Old Testament is that it was given to the people who were who were led out of Egypt by this mass, mass exodus. They totally messed up in the in the desert, right? If you know anything about the uh, the, the history of the Bible, that God leads these people out into the in the desert and they start complaining, God, you're not enough. You haven't given us enough. Blah blah blah. And God's kind of like, okay, you're not going to get to go into the promised land. Your kids are. So then, when they're about to go into the promised land. Uh, Moses gets up on a mountain and delivers five sermons to them. That's called the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is five sermons that, the, that Moses gives to the people of God. The next generation, right, uh, 2.0, as they're about to go into uh, the promised land. 
And in Deuteronomy 5 and Deuteronomy 16, I'm just going to give you those references. You can go look them up later. The interesting thing is that when he addresses them, he addresses them as the personal people that he delivered out of Egypt. And then when he addresses them for the, Lord, for the Passover, he says, I delivered you out of Egypt, and this is the meal that I gave you. But it wasn't those people specifically. It was actually their parents. And what's happening in the Passover meal that Jesus picks up is God is, every time that it is called together, it is an invitation into the drama of redemption, right? It is an invitation into personal experiencing. So it's not just merely saying, like, Jesus had a body, and it was broken. Jesus had blood, and it was spilled, and we're going to remember this. That's not the purpose of the, the, the Lord's Supper. It is to basically expand out the table on the night that Jesus was betrayed, and spiritually to sit down at that table and to look Jesus in the eye and see him as he says for you, I am giving myself to save you, to deliver you. You are at a spiritual dynamic, re-reminding yourself, re-engaging, re-freshly experiencing the grace that God gives us in the drama of redemption in Jesus. So when we come to the Lord's table, it's not some spiritual magic of like, does this actually become the body of Jesus? Or is it kind of like under the curtains? No, it is a reminder that Jesus himself personally says to you, out of all the craziness, out of all the weakness, out of all the sin, out of all the gunk in your life, and all the good things that you would want to try to hold up as your identity, he personally comes right to you says, I'm giving you myself instead, and I'm taking the wrath of God that you deserve. He's saying that personally. You are getting a spiritual dynamic, a spiritual reminder, a spiritual fresh grace with Jesus to say, he is enough. He is good for you. So that when we take the Lord's Supper, it is not merely, oh, okay, we're going to remember this gospel message. We talked about catechisms a lot. Can I throw this catechism stuff up here for you real quick? Heidelberg Catechism. This is uh, Heidelberg Catechism question 75. How does the Lord's Supper signify and seal to you that you share in Christ one sacrifice on the cross and all his gifts? How does the Lord's Supper help us? Right, that's what the question is. How does the Lord's Supper help us? Here's the answer that the Heidelberg Catechism gives. Beginning of it, in this way, Christ was, has commanded me and all believers to eat this bread this broken bread, and drink this cup in remembrance of him. With this command, he gave these promises. Do you notice how this is not just kind of like, hey, here's a definition, Webster Dictionary, on what the Lord's Supper is. It's a promise. There's something that Jesus is giving us. First thing, first thing the Heidelberg Catechism says, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup given to me, so surely was his body offered for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Let's pause there. I recognize, and the Bible recognizes, what you are called to believe in is something that you cannot see. You can't see Jesus. I mean, unless you've had a vision, I'd love to talk about, you, talk about it with you. It is a matter of faith. But Jesus, in knowing that it is something that we believe in without seeing, knows we need physical, tangible things that we can hold in our hands, reminders that he is true and real. So 
when we say, here's the body of our Lord, we remind him, he lived in the same world that we live in. He breathed the same air that we breathe. He had the same life that we have. He was real. And he gave up himself. Can you imagine being asked, I'm, I'm going to execute you now so that this person can live? He does that as a promise of his love for you in the Lord's Son. So let's go to the second one that we get here from the Heidelberg Catechism. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste of my mouth the bread and the cup of the Lord as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely does he himself nourish and refresh my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood. That is where we talk about his whole like being gospel-centered, being gospel-rich, being gospeled in Jesus. He is enough. He is himself giving you everything that you need for your life in him. That's what the Lord's Supper does. So when we're going to take these trays here in a few minutes, we are reminding ourselves what I need at a spiritual level <laughs> is not the best pastor, is not the best church, is not all the best spiritual dynamics. I need Jesus himself and him alone only, period, full stop. And that's what the Lord's Supper reminds us. I get Jesus because he's promised himself to me. It's not a question, not like a spiritual dynamic I gotta figure out. He promises to give himself to me. Let's finish this point by just focusing in on verse 26. Maybe you've read this and you've wondered what is going on in this passage. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What does that mean? You know what that means? When we take the Lord's Supper, I stand out of the pulpit and the entire church gets in the pulpit. And we say together, Jesus, he is enough. He is for us. Everything that's true about him is true about us. He is our identity. Jesus is our life. We get together, basically the, the pulpit expands to be this whole room and we say to each other and to the world around us, Jesus and him alone. Right, So when we say loving Jesus together, we do that when we take the Lord's Supper together. We get in the pulpit and we say, Jesus, he is who defines us, him. So for all who are weak and are weary and are struggling and ambivalent and strong, those who are confused and doubting and wrestling, Jesus holds out in the Lord's Supper every promise, a reminder. He is himself enough for you today so that you can, by faith, hold on to him until you see him by sight. Right, the end of that phrase, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Can I remind you from Revelation 21, this is what our eyes will see when we see him face to face. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things had passed away." What are the struggles, the pains, the things that cause you to cry, the things that cause mourning and just heartache, and the things that are hard from this last week and the week ahead? 
Those are the things that Jesus gives himself to you now by faith, and he's given the servant the Lord's Supper to help supplement that faith so that you can see him face to face. You can get from this day to that day, and he cares enough about you to not just kind of like, here's your assignment, make it work. He has cared for you to give you the Lord's Supper so that we can continue to feed our faith with his delivering grace so that we can see him face to face. Right? There is a forward, when we take the Lord's Supper, it's not just kind of like this religious thing that we do, hats off to being religious. This is saying, I'm not enough for myself. I will never be enough to feed my own soul. I must be delivered from myself and delivered to him, and he has given you this meal to feed your soul with more of him so that you see him face to face. Right? You see, this, this is taking it out of this like religiosity thing. And we're getting more of Jesus in our life together. Okay, let's finish out verses 27 to 34. This is going to be very abrupt and striking to us. We want to be, the Lord's Supper feeds us so that we are community fed with purifying grace. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body of the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself. And so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats the, and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why you eat, that is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if you judge yourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together and eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give you directions when I come. I want to let these just rest on us. There is a warning in this passage, and I'm not going to try to talk us around. There is a warning to say, in the Lord's Supper, you are identifying with Jesus. He is my soul's life and meaning. And if, like the Corinthian church, you come to the Lord's Supper, you come to church to do something other than get Jesus himself, and you take the Lord's Supper as a way of promoting yourself, feeding your religiosity, that will be bad news for you. Even to the extent, I don't know how else to explain it, than just to let them sit at face value. That is why some of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Clearly, Paul had a theology of thinking there is something serious about saying, I'm with Jesus, and then acting in a way that was different from that. It is very sobering. But when he talks about it, he doesn't just say, verse 28, let a person examine himself and leave it at that. I'm not sure what church context you came from, but this has been used and can be used to cause endless, needless, excessive introspection. Am I in Jesus? Am I not? Do I have strong enough faith? Do I not? Am I, am I, did I do enough good things this last week so that I can take the Lord's Supper and, and be okay with God? That's not what's in view here. The Bible is never asking you to be a perfect Christian. It's not even asking you to be close to a perfect Christian. The, the Bible is just simply saying, are you a true Christian? Do you trust in Jesus? It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the object. When you're drowning, it doesn't really matter how strong your arm is. It matters how strong the grip is that's grabbing you to pull you out of the water, right? That's what faith is with Jesus. We are drowning. 
absolutely weak in ourselves. And that little, little act of faith, that is Jesus grabbing onto us. He is stronger, mightier, perfect, so that my little act of faith doesn't have to be. But that's what saves. That's what's true faith. That's what's true Christianity. It's not proving yourself. It's not doing all the rules right. And so when he's saying, evaluate yourself, maybe the best context for that, do you notice he says, let a person examine himself. So if anyone eats or drinks without discerning the body, verse 29, there is a body dynamic, a church life dynamic, and maybe the better place to ask the question, where am I at with Jesus, is to ask those who are in your small group, those around you, hey, am I, does it seem like I'm on track with Jesus or am I not? I think it's better to get a, the, the evaluation of your brothers or sisters in Jesus rather than, I don't know, I'm, I'm a neurotic freak. I just go deep and I just keep diving and it's just like, we're going down to the Mariana Trench in my soul and it's not going to be a happy place. <laughs> That's why I need my friend to say, Jesus, Jacob, chill out. Jesus has got you. We are good. We need each other in evaluating. That does not excuse that difference to say we don't need to, we don't need to pure, have the grace purified in us. That does not mean that we don't need his help. So Hebrews 12, 11, Paul kind of alludes to this. And it's said elsewhere, Hebrews 12, 11, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the, fruit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness that those who have been trained by it. God's discipline for us is to help us to grow in Jesus. He disciplines us so that we would grow in grace. It purifies us. God has given us the Lord's Supper as a moment, a weekly reminder to say, what are the ways in which I need to realign my identity with Jesus? And we get that help from those around us in the life of the church. So we're going to take the Lord's Supper here in a second. And the question I'm going to lead us into, are you hungry for grace? Are you hungry for more of Jesus? Are you hungry to be found in him and to grow in him? Are you hungry to confess your sin and enjoy his free, merciful kindness to you? But the Lord's Supper is given to us so that we can be a community that feasts on grace together. So can we pray for that? And then we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Lord, as we turn to the Lord's Supper now to apply this very message we've talked about, would you help us to be a people that enjoy your grace, that are sobered by your work among us, that, are enjoy, that enjoy your grace that purifies us, that delivers us and unites us as a family. Lord, help us, I pray, to take this meal together because we get Jesus together and we love him together. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.